If this hammer could talk, what do you think it would say? It might say something like, hey, I love my life. I get to pound things all day long. If this was a Christian hammer, it might even say, hey, I'm blessed. Now, if this nail could talk, what do you think it would say? Ouch. It might say something like that, like, what on earth did I ever do to deserve this? I hate my life. And while we're at it, I hate the hammer. So a question. If you could be the hammer or the nail, which one would you choose? Well, a man by the name of A.W. Tozier wrote a famous essay called The Hammer, the File, and the Furnace. And in it, he said, the hammer's a useful tool, but the nail really doesn't see it that way. The nail only knows the hammer as something that exists to pound it into submission. The nail hates the hammer, but they're both useful tools in the hands of a carpenter. It's the carpenter that gets to decide whose head gets pounded next, right? Not the nail, not the hammer. It's the carpenter. They're both servants of the same workman, and it's the carpenter's sovereign right to choose when the nail gets smacked. And in doing so, the nail gets a glimpse of the carpenter's plan for the future. He will submit to the carpenter's will. Now, I tell you that because for the most part, you and I are nails. God did not put us on earth to be hammers. Keep that in mind as we continue to learn from James how Christians are to live in a world that's becoming increasing hostile to Christianity and towards Christ. Last week, James told his brothers and sisters, fellow nails in the first century, to count it all as joy when you meet hammers. For you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it as joy, right? Recognize your blessings in this life, even if you are a lowly nail. And the big question is, for us, how do we do it? You know, when you think about it in your Christian walk, I want you to fill in this blank right now, okay? I know God is blessing me when, fill in the blank, and be honest. Often the mindset is that God is blessing us when things are going our way, when we get the promotion, when we get a good report from the doctor, when we have healthy, mindful children. And that's why the opening statement of James just kind of smacks us right between the eyes that we discussed last week. Because when you're going through one of these life's various trials, it's easy to forget that God is glorified, when his children remain faithful. Let me give you an example. In chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, we find a letter written to the church in Smyrna. And Smyrna is located in modern-day Turkey. Each year, citizens of Smyrna had to burn incense to the Roman emperor and declare that Caesar is Lord. Now, during quiet times, Christians who didn't do that, they were maybe, perse- they were maybe harassed at best. But when persecution was intense... Things got really ugly in Smyrna. And the year A.D. 155 was one of those bad times. The Roman emperor absolutely demanded that Christians worship him. But Christians led by a man named Polycarp refused. It led to a scene depicted in this famous painting, the martyrdom of Polycarp. He's the old man in the center of the painting. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, and pastor of the church at Smyrna. Now, his execution is well documented. This painting tells the story of his death. 
Now take a close look. To his left is a man by the name of Quadratus. He's the Roman proconsul. Think of him as the hammer in Smyrna. He was powerful and wealthy, and he ordered Polycarp's arrest and trial, thinking if he could get Polycarp to deny Christ, then the rest of the Christians would just fall in line. So Quadratus brought Polycarp into the arena there, tied him to a stake, threatened to release wild animals just to go and devour Polycarp, unless Polycarp acknowledged Caesar is Lord. To this, Polycarp replied, 86 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And that response infuriated Quadratus. The proconsul threatened Polycarp with fire. Polycarp replied a second time saying this, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And with that, Quadratus lit the fire to be lit, and Polycarp was burned alive at the stake. Now, with that story in mind, let me ask you, which of these two men, Polycarp, Quadratus, which one was blessed? How would you answer? I hope our answer would be different than those outside of Christianity. When the world compares a wealthy, powerful, living man to a lowly, poor, dying one, it's no contest. But the world doesn't see everything, does it? It doesn't have the right perspective. And that's the main point James is going to address today as we continue in the book of James. Under this overarching theme of Christian living, we're going to talk a lot about perspective. And so let's pick it up in James chapter 1, 9 through 12, as James writes to believers in Christ the following. But the brother of humble circumstance is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here James affirms it's all about perspective. He's encouraging a believer who is poor to look past his earthly situation and glory in his high position already purchased through Christ. Likewise, James is encouraging a rich believer to look past his earthly situation and humble himself with the love of Christ. After all, our time here on earth is limited. We are all just passing through. This is not our home, and James reinforces that in these verses. So if we're caught up in the world's definition of blessing, then handling the trials that James is outlining here, it's going to be hard. It won't go so well, but it's the spiritual blessings we have in Christ that enable us to battle these trials that face us every day with joy as discussed last week. So here James reminds us that, Poly, that a person like Polycarp, even in that situation that we described earlier, can still have joy in the fact that he's been adopted in the family of God, that he's an heir to eternal life, that he's a child of the king, that he's an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. Polycarp, like us, 
can look forward to the day of our future resurrection and eternity with our Creator, with our Lord, in spite of any current or future trial that's coming our way. There's nothing that a quadratus can do to take that away. So our perspective must be heavenly. So James starts off verse 12 by stating, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Let's take a moment to define what he means by blessed this morning. The Greek word that James uses here for blessed in verse 12 is makarios. And in case you're makarios, it's the same word Jesus uses over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, to name a few. So in both Matthew and James, blessed refers to a person who's highly favored by God and in a right relationship with the Lord. That in itself is a beautiful, beautiful thought. But there's even more to being blessed than that because, and here's where it gets interesting, because at the root word, at the root of that word, it carries with it this idea of being happy. Now, we just read earlier, James says, count it joy when you encounter trials. And now he's saying, talking about being blessed when you persevere in a trial with this underpinning of happiness, are you starting to sense this theme that James is laying down here for us? Our perspective is everything. How many times have you said or felt or heard someone else say, I'm not happy? Or more specifically, I'm not happy with my, you fill in the blank. I'm not happy with my job. I'm not happy with my body. I'm not happy with my spouse. I'm not happy with my church, with my life. I'm not happy. Now let's set aside the first century persecuted church just for a moment. Because our culture has gotten to the point, and I'm sure you would agree with me, where we take the pursuit of happiness very seriously. I mean, a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort are devoted to this elusive thing called happiness. And most people, including some of our brothers and sisters, they just never find it. Because for some reason, we've swallowed this idea that guys like Quadratus, guys with good jobs and good looks and good hair, they've got all the power. They're the ones who are blessed. Meanwhile, James tells us that we've been looking at this thing all wrong. We have the wrong perspective. The person who's truly best blessed is a believer like Polycarp, who is in the right relationship with God and remains faithful. He should be happy and joyful. When life gets difficult, he's the one who's going to receive the crown of life, not Quadratus. Now, before we move on, does that phrase that James mentioned there, the crown of life, does that interest you at all? Because when Jesus walked on earth, he instructed his followers to store up treasures where? In heaven, right? Why did he tell us to do that? Because if we store up treasures in heaven, no one and nothing can touch it up there. He said, where moth and dust does not destroy, where thieves do not break through and steal. He tells us, don't store up treasures on earth. It's just going to rot away. Somebody could come take it and steal it. Store up treasure in heaven. And he closed by saying this. I tell you what. You show me where your treasure is and I'll show you where your heart is. Heavenly treasure is our true treasure. And sometimes we miss out on the practical side of things like how do I make that internal investment? How do I do this? 
Well, when reading about crowns in the Bible, understand there's two vastly different Greek words used to translate into English the word crowns. The first one is diadema. Okay, it's to the left up there. And that's the word used to describe the crown a king wears. A diadema is a symbol for ruling and authority. And it's not, it's not the word used here in James or in any other New Testament passage referring to crowns that will be given to believers. However, if we all take a glance over here to the, our final stained glass window, it is the word used to describe the crown that Jesus will wear on his head when he returns to judge the living and the dead. So understand that a diadem, that crown, belongs to the king, not to servants like James or Polycarp or us. Okay? Now, the other type of word used for crown is stephanos. Right? And stephanos is a crown of leaves that was usually given to a victor in the Greek games, and you might even recognize it to this day because when we watch the Olympics, we see that pop up again. Here's a picture of one of the most famous Olympian athletes, Michael Phelps, wearing that crown of leaves. That's the crown James was referring to, the one that symbolizes a victory, a job well done. And there's several of these crowns listed in the New Testament, these heavenly treasures that Christ instructed us to store up while we were on earth. And not only does the Bible mention it, it also mentions a little bit of how to earn those. So let's just look at a couple this morning since we're on this topic. First of all, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.25 that you can earn what's called an imperishable crown. And you earn it by faithfully serving and walking with the Lord, as did the Apostle Paul. But, in case you're wondering, it doesn't say anything like you have to be an apostle or you have to be in full-time ministry to get this crown. We're all ministers, are we not? And if you're looking for a place to minister, there's plenty of opportunities right here at CCC. Right? You can get involved with the youth. Better yet, you can be a nursery worker. And I think there's a verse that says you get two crowns for that. Right? You can help in the kitchen. You can help pick up the church. You can help keep the grounds in good order. You can help them help keep the grounds looking nice. You can come up with a new idea for ministry and just do it. Right? Serve others in and outside the church. You get the picture. That's how we earn that crown. If the church is just a place where you come and sit and listen to a sermon and leave, that's just being religious. We all know that. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. We'll cover that in more detail next week. Well, there's another type of imperishable reward or crown Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. And let's look at this one together because this is kind of neat. When he writes his letter to the, to the Thessalonians, that's kind of tough to say, he tells those Christians that they will be his crown. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? When we stand in the presence of our Lord, the people that we both initially help lead to and or serve faithfully so they strengthen their walk with the Lord, they're going to be our reward. Or as Paul put it here, they're going to be our crown of rejoicing. So do you know what that means? That means that Christ is going to reward us for faithfully representing him here on earth. And if you want this crown, church family, then we need to share our faith 
We need to serve others to deepen their walk with Christ. Don't just keep Jesus all to yourself. Tell someone else about Jesus. Invite him to church. And with Easter coming up, there's a lot of opportunities to do that. The crown of rejoicing. In addition to those two crowns just mentioned, if you want to look them up on your own, there's a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Peter describes a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, 4. But the crown James referred to was called the crown of life. And there's only one other time in Scripture that that's mentioned. And that's Revelation 2.10, where we read this. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Trials. Theme of James. This passage in Revelation, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. In both references, both times in the scripture where crown of life is mentioned, it's in this context of trials, tribulation. It appears to be reserved for the believer who stays faithful as we experience trials in life. And that's why we look at a guy like Polycarp and we say, he is blessed. Now with all those crowns mentioned in scripture, there's one other Stephanos time that that's mentioned in the New Testament. However, it has nothing to do with rewards that a believer gets. Thankfully, it's not a crown that you and I will ever have to wear. But I do think it bears mentioning that when our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified... He wore a crown of thorns, a Stephanos of thorns. And he did that for us to secure a place with him for eternity should we accept him as our Lord and Savior. So when God brings these various trials in our lives, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And when we remain faithful... We pass the test, we mature as believers, and we earn a reward that will never fade away, a crown reserved for us in heaven. God allows believers to go through various trials for our own good and for his glory. But here's what he does not do. God doesn't lead us into temptation. We have to have the proper perspective on that also. So let's continue here in James verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. This is a personal responsibility clause because up to this point, James has just been addressing various trials that God allows in the lives of believers for for refining us, for refining us through fire like gold, right? But here he shifts gears and he addresses temptations. Now, temptation, by definition, is something you know you should avoid. Something you know you should avoid. But one of the best examples of temptation I know of is this mousetrap I brought with me. Because we've all used one of these at times, right? To catch that pesky little mouse. you got to set it just right. you got to determine what bait you're going to use. If you're going to use a little cheese, what else could you use? You could use a little peanut butter. You need to place it just perfect on the mouse trail, right, so you can catch the guy. Because mice are very cautious at first. They're not just going to run up and dive headfirst into the trap after that peanut butter, right? What they're going to do is they're going to sniff around a little bit, right? They're going to they're nudge it with their cute little nose and see what's going on. And they're going to they're wait, right? And if nothing happens, they might go for the bait. 
Now, I've checked my mousetrap before after I loaded up with peanut butter, and peanut butter is all gone. So what do you do then? You load up even more peanut butter, right? You stuff it in there. You give them an all-night peanut butter buffet to munch on. Because eventually, bam, you're going to get the mouse, right? And then you got rid of it. Mice are easily deceived, and so are we. Not by peanut butter, but we're deceived by other baits that entice us. Each individual uniquely, like drugs for some, an affair, greed, pride, power, or some other sin we feel just isn't that bad and we allow it into our lives. My experience is you don't jump headfirst right into any of those sins we just mentioned that entrap us, but just like the mouse, when tempted, we sniff around a little bit, right? Sniff around a little while. When you try it out and nothing happens, eh, then you get comfortable with it. And James is reminding us that God doesn't tempt us. Rather, it's our own lust that is the culprit. Humans are, we're just always looking for the next thing to find happiness. And it's ironic that James says, right here, try being faithful during a trial. That's how he described it. And second, James warns that when you're facing a trial, if it, that that's not an excuse to sin. If you give in to your own desire, if you take that bait, there's going to be consequences. Not only will you miss out on those rewards, those crowns that we mentioned at the judgment seat of Christ, but you're going to miss out on blessings in this life. So you better have the right perspective now on consequences. James continues in verses 15 through 18. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Sin always produces consequences in this life, and forfeits, as I mentioned, those crowns in the next. That's just the law of sowing and reaping, right? Spring is right around the corner, I hope. After what, what, last week, maybe not. You wouldn't think so, but it's right around the corner. We can feel it. And for those of you who are gardeners, if you plant a cucumber seed, don't expect tomato plants to grow, right? Even, we're all Christian, even if we just pray to God to miraculously transform those cucumber seeds into beautiful tomato plants, what's going to grow? Cucumbers. And so it is with sin. Sinful decisions produce destructive consequences. And sometimes, like the mouse messing around with the trap, we're going to get away with it for a time. But don't misunderstand that experience as a sign that God is blessing what you know is wrong. Because be sure your sin is just always going to find you out in the end. Some way it will. God informs us the consequences of the consequences. And that should be a motivation enough for us just to repent and stay away from it while we can. Right? The Bible's full of examples on this that we can learn from. A couple come to mind real quick. David, lust gave birth to sin with Bathsheba, and the consequences he faced were great for himself and for the Israelite nation. Samson lost both of his eyes and ultimately his life due to this moral decline that we see throughout his life. There's Achan, Old Testament, who forfeited his life and the life of every member of his family 
because he stole a stupid robe and a little bit of gold. And there's Moses who sacrifices his right to go to the promised land because he lost his cool and struck that rock instead of speaking to it. See, none of these men were blessed for giving in to temptation. So James says, don't be deceived. And if we could call them all together and ask David, for example, you know, hey, David, if you were given a second chance with Bathsheba, you know, would you do it again? Don't expect David to say, yeah, yeah, I guess I'd do it again. I'd do the same thing over again. Don't expect Samson to say, oh, sure, I'd do the same thing with Delilah. Yeah, no, no regrets. I mean, we've got to learn from them, right? And focus on the solution. Because deception leads to disobedience, and disobedience produces sin resulting in death. Again, back to perspective, right? We see here that God's not tempting us. Rather, God is the giver of all good things, perfect gifts. He's actually the solution, not the cause. He will send us what we need to get through the trial as we conform to his will. I mentioned Romans 8.28 last week. Such a great passage in Scripture. We need to verse. We need to just look at that again. 8.28 in Romans says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So just remember that God never, ever, ever, ever will lead us into temptation. But he will deliver us from evil because our God never changes. He's not a shifting shadow, growing, getting smaller. He is the one constant in this life. He gives nothing but good things. And his greatest gift that we're able to be is that we're able to be born again through faith in his son Jesus Christ, the living word of God. And this is how James ends this body of scripture today with an eternal perspective, if you will. He said that we are among the first fruits of his creatures, the most important of all. He chose us from the beginning to belong to him, to be with him forever. He doesn't want to tempt us. He wants to save us. And as you know, we're not saved by going to church or giving money or even go, doing the right thing during the trials that we're talking about here in James. Those are all works. You're saved by grace through faith or you're not saved at all. You either believe in Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection, or you have not been born again. That's the starting point. Everything else we've been talking about in these first 18 verses comes after you've been redeemed. For your life, from the moment Christ redeems you, your life is not your own, right? We know this. You and I were bought with a price. James, us, like James, we are servants of the living God. And sometimes our master entrusts us with difficult things to do like Polycarp. But through these 18 verses of James, we've discovered that there are multiple reasons why he would do something like that. Put us in that type of situation. Sometimes God just calls you to be a nail. Sometimes he calls you to endure a trial so you can grow in faith. That's called maturity. And sometimes he allows us to experience these different hammers so we can have the opportunity to share that gospel with somebody else who are, if we weren't going through that trial, we wouldn't have the opportunity to do that otherwise. So if you happen to be going through a trial right now, look for that opportunity that, to share your faith and get that crown of rejoicing. Sometimes God just puts us through a trial so we can 
learn and be equipped to help somebody else down the road. Because wisdom, it doesn't come from vending machines. It's a skill for living that comes by faithfully applying biblical principles to our lives. And finally, finally, God allows these trials so we can, first and foremost, everybody, glorify God. And I know that's hard sometimes to put our mind around, to wrap our brains around. But consider men like Job, we talked about last week, and Polycarp today. Remember, the world just marvels at believers who faithfully endure trials. So God will be glorified, right? Amen. He will be glorified. He'll make sure of that. Let's continue to lift him up this morning. Let's continue, just do our part, to glorify his holy name. Let's worship him in song as we sing from our heart to our king. And I thought an appropriate song today would be crown him with many crowns. Let's sing verses 1, 2, and 4.